Nehemiah chapter 4. Now when Sanballat heard that they were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. He said in the presence of his brothers in the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and said, yes, what are they building? If a fox goes up on it, he will break down this stone wall. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunts on their own heads. Give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight. For they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall. And all the wall was joined together to half its height. For the people had a mind to work. And when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdites heard that the repairing of the wall of Jerusalem was going forward, and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. We prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. That time the Jews who lived near them came from all direction and said to us, Ten times you must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space between the walls and open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plans, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me, and I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread. We are separated on the wall, far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. So we labored at the work, and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that they may be a guard for us by night, and may labor by day. And neither I, nor my brothers, nor my servants, nor the men of the guards who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word, he may be seated. Well, I do not claim to be a Shakespeare expert by any means, but there is a scene in Henry V that has been quoted in various contexts and has become a famous part of Shakespearean writing and folklore. It's a speech by Henry V urging his men as they go into battle that even though they be outnumbered, that they are to fight with valor and honor for England, and that if they do so, their fame and honor would be theirs. And so he gives this speech, this rousing speech on the eve of St. Crispin's Day, 
and therefore it's called St. Crispin's Day Speech. Let me read an excerpt of it this morning. Henry V said, He which hath no stomach to fight, let him depart. His passport shall be made, and crowns for convoy will be put in his purse. We would not die in that man's company. That fears his fellowship to die with us. This day is called the Feast of Crispian. He that outlives this day and comes safe home will stand a tiptoe when the day is named and rouse him at the name of Crispian. He that shall live this day and see old age will yearly on this vigil feast his neighbors and say, tomorrow is St. Crispian. Then he will strip his sleeve and show his scars and say, these were wounds I had on Crispin's day. Old men forget, yet all shall be forgot. But he'll remember with advantages what feats he did that day. Then shall our names, familiar in the mouths as household words, be in their flowing cups, freshly remembered. This story shall a good man teach his son, and Crispin's Crispian shall never go by, from this day to the ending of the world. But we in it shall be remembered. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers. For he today that sheds his blood with me shall be my brother. This is an inspiring speech, a rousing speech, a, a good speech for Memorial Day. And it is that phrase, we few, we happy few, we band of brothers. That is the part that is the most well-known and used many times, often in the context of war and conflict. It was used for the title, as you may know, of a famous miniseries about World War II. And there is something that happens in affliction that bonds people together, as it says, makes them a band of brothers. Perhaps you've experienced that if you've been a part of the military or even on a sports team or a work situation, or perhaps even in marriage itself, or if you've gone through a, a challenging, a, even a difficult circumstance, one that you would never want to repeat, but through it you are bonded together with one another like nothing else can or, or could. And that conflict is something that makes us stronger, or at least it can. Because as we know, conflict also has the potential to discourage and even to destroy. And that is exactly what we see in this passage this morning from Nehemiah chapter 4, that Nehemiah and the Israelites are facing conflict. There's opposition that is waged and threatened. And yet through it, they are toughened. Their resolve is strengthened. And at the end of the day, this conflict does not destroy them. In fact, it makes them much stronger because they were going about a good work, a, a work of the Lord. And the same happens today. Indeed, we are in battle. We have an ancient foe, an enemy that is against us. And his desire is our demise and the demise of our work. And yet we're to battle on to battle on in the, the strength of the Lord, to do the Lord's work, using the weapons that he has given us to battle with. 
And through it, I think we'll see that we have this bond, this band of brothers and sisters in Christ that can defeat any attack that comes our way. And so there are three attacks that we see this morning from this passage. And we see the God-ordained weapons that are used against such attacks. And those will be our three points this morning. We see mockery and prayer. We see threats and a ready response. And then we see discouragement and a word of hope. First, mockery and prayer. Just as a brief recap, the Lord has stirred up Nehemiah to do a work. After decades of Jerusalem being in disrepair, there is work finally being done. And through it, much more than just a city being built up. Yes, that is happening, but we are reminded that this city has tied to it many covenant promises. And so as the city is being built up, so is the work of the Lord. And the Lord is doing his work through these people and through this city. Because the covenant promises that at a time were seemed to be cut off and buried in the rubble, God was faithful to remember because God keeps covenant for a thousand generations. And so through revival of this work, he is reviving the work of the covenant and of redemption. But as we see in this passage this morning, this work on the walls does not go unnoticed and it does not go forth with accolades from all. In fact, there is great hostility and even anger. That's how the chapter begins, doesn't it? That when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged. And we see something of a principle here, a principle both of physics but also of life, that motion produces friction. Isn't that Newton's law of motion? For every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. Well, that's true not only in the physical realm, but that is true in life and especially in the spiritual realm. It seems like any movement forward means that there will be challenges and opposition and hurdles that must be cleared. Pastor Myers and I need to remind ourselves of that oftentimes. When we have challenges in the church, we are reminded, well, it's because hopefully things are marching forward. And as things march forward, there often comes problems and difficulties because that is the nature of life, and that's what we see here. In, in chapter 3, we see action taking place. And as a result, chapter 4, we see reaction to that action. In other words, chapter 3, we see the, the work of the Lord. And in chapter 4, we see the, the work of the evil one. And it comes in the form of opposition, that of Sanballat and Tobiah. And we shouldn't be surprised by this. We shouldn't be surprised when the church faces attacks and faces opposition. Why? Because ultimately the evil one is not pleased. That's what Paul reminds the church, that we ultimately do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Yes, the opposition may come from 
flesh and blood, but there is something behind it. And we battle against that. We battle against the rulers and against the authorities and against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Paul says that it's through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of heaven. Do we forget that? I think we do oftentimes. Oftentimes when we face opposition, we get very much discouraged or we draw a conclusion that, well, this can't be the the will of God or, or maybe this is even showing God's disapproval because too often our definition of blessing means that there's no opposition or, or no conflict when the reality is it can be the exact opposite. It may mean opposition. In fact, that's what Jesus says, doesn't he, in the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. He says, rejoice and be glad. That's, that's not our first response, is it? To, to rejoice and be glad when this takes place. But he says that we are to rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And we even say, so they persecuted our Lord. And Jesus said, if they persecute me, they will also persecute you. And so that is the the pattern of the Christian life. And we should not think that we are exempt from it or even seek to be exempt from it because Jesus obviously says that is the way of blessing. Paul says in Philippians chapter one, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Do we believe that? Do we understand that? Do we, do we know that that is part of the cost of discipleship, that we would suffer for his sake? I, I believe we need to hone up on our theology of suffering. And we must be ready to be persecuted and to be afflicted. We must be ready to, to lose our, our jobs, our, our livelihoods, our possessions, perhaps even our very lives for the sake of Christ and the cross. We need to be ready. We need not be surprised nor caught off guard. That does not mean that we should not know the attacks that will come our way. No, Paul says that we are not ignorant of the devil's schemes or his tactics. And I think we see some of them in this passage. What is the first attack that comes on Nehemiah and the Israelites? Well, it's Mockery, it's ridicule, it's jeering. We hear it with Sanballat in verse two. He said to all of the people, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? He essentially is saying, what do they think they can do? Do they really believe that they can build this wall and out of the rubble? Will they restore? Will they revive Jerusalem? Essentially, he's saying, ha, they can't do it. 
They are feeble. They are impotent. They are just little Jews. And then we see Sanballat's crony, Tobiah, the Ammonite, jumping in, his mini-me kind of jumping on the, the same cause and saying, yes, what are they building? If a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Saying even, couldn't even be able to support a, a fox, let alone an army that would advance against it. And so we see these two ringleaders of the rabble-rousers. And why are they doing this? Well, they're doing it to ultimately try to bring down the work because their intentions have been made very clear. In fact, Nehemiah has mentioned this in chapter 2. He talks about Sanballat and Tobiah. When they heard that Nehemiah had come and, and the intentions that he had, it says it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. Can you hear what it says? Their position was threatened. Their status, their pride in themselves, their self-worth. See, Jerusalem in disrepair meant that the Jerusalem people were, were vulnerable and they were needy and they liked it that way because it made them powerful made them to be relied upon, it meant that they had to be dealt with, that they had to be reckoned with. But if the walls are built up, well, the people of Israel become independent, don't they? They become free of their power, of their control, their, their sway. They did not seek the, the welfare of the people. They sought their own wealth for it. And so what do they do? They, they lash out. First in word, and how our culture is prone to this, aren't we? If we can just label someone. We do not need to, to listen to them. We don't need to hear what they say or what they think or, or what they, they believe. If we can just say, well, they're just this or they're just that, what are we doing? We're just belittling, aren't we? We're just pushing them down. Just to feel better about ourselves or feel better about our position or feel better about our, our tribe, so to speak. And we use this mocking, we use this jeering, and it becomes not much different than what happens on the elementary playground on a daily basis. But do we understand that if, if we are engaging in this, and hopefully we're not, but if we engage in this type of, of rhetoric, if this type of mocking and this type of jeering, then, then we're doing the work of the evil one. We're engaging in his work. And the scriptures talk all the time about the mouth and about the tongue. Proverbs says that death and life are in the power of the tongue. James says that the tongue is a fire used for a world of evil. Why? Because it reveals the heart. Jesus says out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so, what is in the heart will come forth. If it is good, good will come forth. If it is evil, evil will come forth. And so we need to, to take stock of what our mouth and the words of our mouth say about our hearts and their abundance. Is it a heart that is full of self, full of this world? 
Or is it full of God and of Christ? What we see with Sanballat and Tobiah, they were full of self, weren't they? And they were ultimately against the things of God. It comes in the form of ridicule. It comes in the form of mocking. It comes in the form of name-calling. And when this is done to us, when we're on the receiving end of it, it it's hurtful, isn't it? It's painful. A childhood saying that sticks and stones may break my bones, but words may never hurt me is not true, is it? Words are very painful. They're very effective to get a desired result. Not a God-glorifying result, but a selfish, self-glorifying result. It's a mocking and ridicule are always the, the first shots, so to speak, that are fired in a conflict. And what do we do? What are we to do if this happens to us? Well, we're to give it right back, aren't we? We're to take nothing from no one. Tit for tat. Load up your verbal gun. Spout off. Get revenge. Go on a social media rampage. No. No. That is not what we are to do. What are we to do? We're to do what Nehemiah does. Do you see what Nehemiah did? He prayed. Verse 4. Hear O our God, for we are despised. He didn't return evil for evil. He didn't return name-calling for name-calling. He doesn't say, oh, yeah, well, at least my name's not Sandballet. Sandballet. Go put on your little pink tutu and go away. He doesn't do it, does he? He doesn't engage in that type of, of rhetoric. He doesn't stoop himself. No, he goes to the Lord. He says, Lord, you defend my cause. You remember what we're doing and what it's about. And that is what we're called to do as well. Ephesians 4, 29, do not let any unwholesome talk. Children, listen to this. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth for only that which is helpful for building others up according to the needs, that it may benefit those who listen. We're not to tear down, we're to build up, aren't we? And what about your namesake? What about your reputation? Do we need to defend it? No, we don't need to defend it. We commit it to the Lord. We leave it in the Lord's hand. This is in Romans chapter 12, we're never to avenge ourselves, but leave it for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. If you experience mockery, if you experience humiliation, bring it to the Lord in prayer. Well, second, we see threats and a ready response. What is the result of this mocking, this ridicule? Well, it doesn't work, does it? Verse 6, so we built a wall, and the wall was joined together to half its height for the people had a mind to work. And as a result, because they didn't engage in it, they didn't lower themselves to to play this game, the attack is ratcheted up now with more vitriol and hatred. You see it in verse 7. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and Ashdites heard that the repairing of the wall of Jerusalem was going forward, that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. You see that they begin to add more to their numbers. Now we talk about the, the Arabs and the Ammonites joining in with them. If you Look at where all of these places are. Literally, Jerusalem is surrounded by their enemies. 
surrounded by opposition. And so it goes from mocking to a very real threat. And so what are we to do then? Well, look at what Nehemiah does. Verse 9, and we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. I love that phrase. You should double underline it. It says we pray and we set a guard. We prayed and we also had a plan. We set a guard of protection against them day and night. And that's not because the prayers were ineffective or they didn't think that they would work. No, we need to be reminded that sometimes when we pray, the Lord may give us the answers as part of our plans, as part of the solution. And we should note that progression. Oftentimes there's a lot of confusion within Christian circles. As I said, if it is just words, words are nothing. Words are cheap. We're to ignore words. But when those words move to threats, the people of God should move to, to action. Not an offensive action, but a defensive action that we should not see this harm come upon us. And so biblical morality never rules out self-defense. It doesn't. Some might say, well, doesn't Jesus say when somebody slaps you, you're to turn the other cheek? He does say that, but we need to understand what he's saying when he says that. Slapping in that culture was a form of insult, not injury. If someone slapped you, it hurts your pride, but it was not someone that was trying to hurt your head. And so if someone insults you, yes, then you are to turn the other cheek. But when that slap or that blow becomes someone to try trying to take off your head, well, that becomes something totally different, doesn't it? We should be ready with a, a counterpunch and in a hurry. I know that doesn't sound very, very Christian or Christian-like, but I think it's, it's right. Again, you might say, well, Jesus didn't fight back in his final hours, did he? That is true, again, but he was submitting to the will of his Father. And there is a time that we need to submit to the higher will, the, the higher authority. For example, if, if lawful authority is, is harassing and persecuting the church, then we may need to submit to that. But that doesn't mean that we aren't able and should not. We should fight it through the proper channel. Think of the Apostle Paul. He did not resist arrest, did he? But he also appealed it all the way to Caesar. It means he used the, the legal process to try to get out of prison, to, to be freed from this persecution. Listen, if it is an unlawful authority that is doing the, the persecuting, in this case, Sanballat and Tobiah and Arab, the Arabs and the Ammonites, these were perpetrators. They had no lawful authority over Nehemiah and no lawful authority over Jerusalem. In fact, they were going against the orders of the king, weren't they? And so they had every right to defend themselves. And the same is true for you. If an intruder comes into your house, or if some Joe that is trying to do injury to you or to your family or to some defenseless person, then you need to be ready to go into action. Even unto life, in laying down your life if need be. 
Let's not claim this, this Christian pacifism by any means. Shepherds don't allow the wolf to attack the sheep or to protect the sheep. And I think we see that here, right? The, the spears and the, the swords were not just for show. They were ready to be used if, if necessary. But thankfully, it was not necessary because it says in verse 15, God had frustrated their plans. And he frustrated their plans because Nehemiah and the Israelites had a plan. Their prayers were answered through the actions of their leaders and the people. They weren't just waiting for some supernatural, miraculous deliverance to to fall down from heaven. They weren't waiting for the angels to come and defend them. No, they got ready themselves. The leaders and the people were not passive. They, They did deliberate actions. And I think the same is true for us. When there are threats, we need to be ready. We need to be prepared in a, in a spiritual sense, not a physical sense. Don't get me wrong. We need to be ready to, to do war and battle against these things that would threaten to try to take us out. And I don't know what that means or what that looks like, but I think we see a, a principle, a precedence set here. But we see another attack, one that is maybe even more effective and can undermine the work quicker than all the rest. We see it in discouragement. See, all the other attacks came from outside the walls, but there's an attack that came from within. And it's when the the people, when the church in particular, starts believing the lie. When they start listening to the narratives of the enemy and they become paralyzed by fear. When they start thinking that the one out there is, is stronger and more powerful We see that here. People begin to stop the work. Why? Because they cower in fear. They believe they need to just hold on because the sky is falling. We see that in verse 10. In Judah, it says, the strength of those who bear the burden is failing. There's too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. You hear what they're saying? We can't do it. We can't do this work anymore. It's too much. Now, why are they saying that? They were, they were doing it just days before, just weeks before. In fact, they were doing it quite well. They had raised the, the wall to half its height. I tell you why they couldn't do it or thought they couldn't do it, because they began to fear. Fear began to suck the courage and the strength out of them. Charles Spurgeon has this great quote. I quoted it a few days ago to our teenagers' group. Spurgeon says, worry does not relieve tomorrow's problems. Rather, it robs of today's strength. You hear what he says? Worry does not relieve us of tomorrow's problems. It just robs us of today's strength. And that is what is happening here, is that they begin to believe this mocking and this ridicule and these threats. They believe the rhetoric. In fact, they even quote what the enemies say in verse 11. They will not know or see till we come upon them and kill them and stop the work. That is being said by the people of Israel. Their strength was gone. They're paralyzed by fear. And what makes it worse is that even those outside of the city, verse 12, are coming in all directions and saying to us 10 times, you must return to us, you must return to us, you must return to us. In other words, those people that lived out the city that came into the city to help rebuild the wall, 
Now those that are outside are saying, hey, you can't build that wall. We got bigger things to do. You need to come back. You need to protect us. You need to help us. It says, we love what Nehemiah says. They, they said it to us 10 times. They said, repeated more often, then maybe it'll be more believable or maybe more true. The morale of the people start to crumble and falter. People want to give up. Begin to say it's too hard, it's, it's too difficult. We'll never succeed. They're too powerful. They're too dangerous. It's all lies. Lies, lies, and damned lies. And Nehemiah has a crisis on his hands, doesn't it? Falsehood and fear begin to spread in the camp. And so what do you do? As a leader, what, as, as a church, what do we do when there's lies, when there's falsehoods? We, we defeat lies with truth, with the preaching of truth, with the teaching of truth. We must arm ourselves with truth. And that's true not only for a church, but that's true for you individually. When you start believing lies, when you start believing falsehoods, and let's admit it, we're also oftentimes our, our worst enemy in this case. We're to arm ourselves with the truth, with the truth of God's word. That is the remedy. And that's exactly what Nehemiah does. Listen to what he says in verse 14. He gathers everyone together and he says, do not be afraid of them. Stop. Remember the Lord. You've forgotten that the Lord is on our side. The Lord who is great and awesome. He is far greater. He's far more awesome. And all of our problems are all of our enemies. He's the one that will fight for us. In fact, he says that very blatantly in verse 20. Our God will fight for us. Therefore, be encouraged. Be strengthened. And continue to do what you're doing. Continue to fight, as he says, for your brothers, for your sons, for your daughters, for your wives, for your homes. This is a beautiful speech. This is far better speech than Henry V's. Because it's full of truth. It's full of God. It's full of the gospel. And we can even add to it, can't we? In the fuller revelation of Christ, we can say, remember Christ who is given for us, that his body was broken, his blood was shed for us. Do you think the Lord will forget us now? Of course not. But have we forgotten the Lord? Do we think that the problems and the enemies are, are far greater than what God can handle or God can control? or even that God can defeat. Of course not. We have forgotten at times the gospel. That's why we need the, the truth of God's word constantly and continually. We need the truth of Christ to give us strength and courage to carry on. We need that helmet of salvation to protect our mind and to protect our thinking, to extinguish the, the fiery darts of the evil one, to extinguish the, the discouragement and the lies. Don't believe the lies. Don't believe the falsehood. Power to be sanctified and protected in truth. Jesus said, your word is truth. That's the sure foundation for our feet. That's the house that's built on the rock of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we're encouraged, when we're strengthened, then we can carry on with our work. You see what was trying to take place. You see what the evil ones Design was that if he can discourage them, if he can 
have them believe this lies, then they will stop working. They'll stop bringing forth the, the kingdom of Christ. And the same thing happens in the church. Let us not be fooled. Let us not be attacked by the attacks of the evil one, but rather let us carry on in the work that God has called us to. Charles Spurgeon had a monthly magazine that he produced. He called it the sword and the trowel. And it comes from this passage in Nehemiah chapter 4 because it says that with one hand they bore the sword and with the other they continued to work on the wall. And that's what we're called to in the Christian life. With one hand we are to bear the sword, the sword of the spirit, the, the sword of truth, to slay the works of the the evil one, to slay the lies, the falsehoods that are out there. And on the other hand, we're to keep the trowel so as to continue to work, continue to build, continue to build his kingdom. We're to tear down those strongholds so as to build up the work of Christ and of his church. We do this all for his glory's sake, enduring hardships, Enduring persecution and and mockery even. We never do it alone, do we? We do it as a a band of brothers and a band of sisters in Christ, bonded together because the spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit that is given to us. And so let us carry on. These attacks have nothing on us. We have Christ. And so like Nehemiah says, remember the Lord. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fights for you. And therefore, fight for your brothers and your sisters, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes, all for his glory's sake. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, how we need that encouragement, the encouragement of Christ in the gospel once again. Lord, we confess we get discouraged very easily. We give up when things become hard and things become difficult. But rather, Lord, you remind us that you are great and awesome and mighty and that you have called us to do a work. So let us do that work unto your glory and unto your honor. And Lord, we know that we have one that is against us, the evil one that attacks And he uses all the different means that he has in his arsenal to have us to lay down our cause, to lay down the banner of the Lord Jesus Christ. But Lord, we are not unaware. And so in the midst of the mockery, in the midst of the threats, in the midst of the discouragement, Lord, may we do battle with the weapons that you have given us, the sword of spirit, the helmet of salvation the shield of faith. And Lord, may we battle as the church militant, the church that is marching so as to bring about your kingdom, all for your glory's sake. Would you help us in this, we pray. We pray it for Christ. Amen.